And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. For two decades, Jonah Goldberg has been a conservative provocateur, writing for the National Review and elsewhere. His latest book is Suicide of the West, How the Rebirth of Nationalism, Populism, and Identity Politics is Destroying American Democracy. I sat down with Jonah last week at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics to talk about his life, his career, his continuing critique of President Trump, and the future of our democracy. Jonah Goldberg, welcome here. Welcome to the Institute of Politics. Good to see you. Um, You know, just reviewing uh, your biography... Uh Uh, it is clear why you might be a natural-born contrarian. Uh-huh. Growing up on the Upper West Side, I'm a New Yorker myself. You're from Stuyvesant Town. I am indeed. Yeah. Uh, the other side of town. Yeah. Uh, but there aren't a lot of conservatives up there on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. No. Uh, my standard joke is we were like Christians in ancient Rome. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, you meet in Central Park and draw a little C in the dirt and say, <laughs> I'll meet you under the catacombs at Zabar's. Um, yeah, so I, I go back and forth about this. I have friends who grew up in the Soviet Union, and they claim that if I had grown up there, you know, like you, you sometimes wonder whether or not the context is different. If I grew up in a, some small conservative southern town, would I have grown up a liberal? Um, I'd like to think not, but who knows? And uh, it was uh, my Parents were pretty political. Uh, my dad was a journalist. My mom was a lot of different things. And uh, uh, But I never really realized how political I was probably until college. It just never really – it wasn't a big part of my identity. You're, you're, let, let, let's talk about your folks. Well, first of all, where are the, where are the uh, Goldbergs from? Uh, my mom grew up uh, in Alexandria, in Virginia, back when that was still a southern town. And my dad – Grew up in the Bronx on Gun Hill Road. And when did his family, they must have come here at some point. The, yeah, the Goldberg side. Um, they're from that whole, you know, early, late 1900s, early, not probably late 1900s, run from the pogroms, you know. The, late, the, late 1800s. Late, late 1800s, yes. Yeah. Like the uh, Lithuania, um, Poland, that whole realm. My grandfather ran a garment factory in the garment district and my grandmother ran a sewing machine and she heard classic story she heard trotsky speak on the house floor on the lower east side twice no kidding yeah because back then they would recruit right down there and um so my dad and his two brothers were the first members of the goldberg family i believe to graduate from grade school never mind high school or college huh. and my dad uh Ran away, the home, ran away from home the way nice Jewish boys from the Bronx went away from home. He graduated from high school when he was like 15 and went <laughs> to the University of Michigan. And uh-huh. my mom was much – she ran away from home the way uh, – She was from the – she was from Alexandria originally? She grew up in Virginia, yeah, mm-hmm. in Alexandria, Virginia. And her dad was a very um, esteemed nuclear physicist who's who actually I believe – was a roommate of Oppenheimer's at one point or something like uh-huh. that and was a was a navy physicist and he actually designed the uh precursor to sonar that was he had the patent for it and uh and she grew up in a much more sort of prim and proper 
household and uh she was episcopalian your dad she's episcopalian that's right so it was a mixed marriage i was raised uh jewish i went to rodef sholem day school on the upper west side which was the first i believe the first reformed jewish day school in the country where mostly liberal jewish parent parents wanted to raise their kids jewish but not too jewish (laughs) (laughs) and uh and i was bar mitzvahed uh but my mom added some flares to it we had Bagpipers playing Hava Nagila at our party and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's you know, a first. Yeah, that actually sounds pretty cool. <laughs> um, and uh, you, you said your dad became a journalist. At, uh, he he worked at United Media. Yeah, so he was one of these guys who I don't think he was ever fired, but one media company kept buying the next media company. So he ran something called the North North American News Alliance, which is one of the early big syndicates. He worked at Scripps Howard. Um, Scripps ended up owning United Media. And so he was he was an editor for most of his career, um, but then moved more to the business side. United Media owned Peanuts and Garfield and a bunch of those kinds of things. So he knew a lot about comic strips and um, purchased that. But he he went through his whole life with a real newspaper man's sensibility of always saying, you know, it would make a great article. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how he began. I would say one out of five of his conversations. Cause yeah. he just thought, and since he was in charge of assigning reporters and feature writers to over a thousand, 2000 newspapers, in effect, he always had someone he could go get, write whatever he wanted to write. And he, he, uh, obviously inculcated you with, uh, some of that, uh, zeal for writing. Yeah. I mean, um, my dad was a much more deliberate. Both my parents were also writers. My mom was a ghost writer for a long time. Then she wrote books on her own. She was a conservative literary agent. When I was a little kid, she was a mounted policewoman in Central Park, um, which was interesting. And uh, she worked briefly in the Kennedy and Johnson White Houses uh, back before my, as my dad put it, went to work on her mm-hmm. um, and moved her rightward. So it was an interesting upbringing. She, uh, I mean, she's a public figure. Yes. Uh, and uh, partly because of her own uh, contrariness. I mean, she uh, co-founded something called the Pussycat League back in the, <laughs> yeah. in the 70s to oppose the women's liberation movement. Yeah, she always said that equality was a step down for women. Was and she, she um, I mean, uh, talks about the fact that she was recruited by the Nixon campaign to infiltrate the McGovern campaign. Yeah. So again, my mom was a colorful, is a colorful lady, and uh, she. This was a big scandal at the time. I didn't have any memory of it except for maybe seeing press in the lobby of our building on Eighty Fourth Street. Uh, she worked many layers below my dad for something called the Women's News Service. And when this came out, my dad immediately issued a, his resignation letter, and my mom did too. They accepted my mom's, and they should have. And rejected my dad's because she was uh, she was working as a journalist, but reporting to the Nixon campaign. Basically, yeah, she was reporting. Basically, the way she tells the story is she just told a lot of stories about how Hunter S. Thompson was sleeping off his booze every day, and um, I think he wrote about that. Actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't think she's never told me that she ever got anything good. This was it was sort of a function of. Of I think Maurice Stans was the bagman cutout for this whole thing, uh, was the paranoia of the Nixon creep crowd to cover all their bases. Yeah, but, I yeah. would say in the pantheon of scandals surrounding the Nixon campaign, this it's one, pretty low. This one, this one was pretty low. And then the last 
way in which she kind of burst into the public consciousness was around the Monica Lewinsky. That's right. My mom was the lady who advised Linda Tripp to record her conversations with Monica and to uh, and that the dress should be kept. And um, I got dragged into some of all that at the time. Uh, it's funny. This like this is the twentieth anniversary of all that, and all these people wanted to sort of do these interviews and stuff, either either to get through me to get to my mom or to talk to me about all of it. And you know, I have I have some regrets, uh, but uh, I just have so little interest in like rehashing all. That. I think, to be honest, you know, in terms of the the political arguments at the time, in terms of sexual harassment and all those kinds of things, I think we've seen a lot of vindication, at least for the things I was saying 20 years ago about all of that. Yeah, the interesting thing about it, I mean, is that, um, and this has been currently debated, some of the same folks who were um, uh, vehement about what Bill Clinton did mm-hmm. um, are now... Uh, pretty forgiving toward the current president over his own behavior. I'm not. (laughs) I mean, this is one of these points, I mean, it gets into the larger political moment, but part of my whole argument about what my role is in the era of Trump is that I don't think I should change my positions about all sorts of things just because the guy's a Republican. And... Um, and I'm not going to, you know, so I would call myself a never Trumper until election day. And then he won. And I, for me, never Trump meant I was never going to endorse him and I was never going to vote for him, but the, you only have one president at a time. So you hope for the best. But the one thing I wasn't going to do is lie about him. And, uh, I have this theory that I get in part from the political scientist, Steve Tellers, that one of the reasons we're in the mess that we're in, at least on the right, is that, you know, there's this great irony that. We live in one of the most partisan moments of all time, or at least the last hundred years. But the parties themselves have never been weaker. Yeah. And uh, and so what has happened almost invisibly is that a whole group, you know, a whole archipelago of institutions that are essentially like consultants um, are de facto party organs, um, and they serve as sort of de facto party organs. Fox News, MSNBC, they do a lot of the work the parties used to do. Um, various think tanks do that too. And magazines like National Review and The New Republic and The Nation, they do, they do a lot of the sort of internal stuff of filtering candidates, vetting candidates, uh, informing voters about candidates and all the rest. And so the problem was that I think in, 19, in 2016, Donald Trump was kind of a stress test. And a lot of people who thought they had the same job description that I do when push came to shove, after he got the nomination, decided that even though they wear a lot of different hats and one of them says writer or pundit or analyst, the one that is most snugly on their head is uh, is party guy. And so you had a lot of people who at the end of the day were party hacks. I don't mean that necessarily in a pejorative sense, except for the fact that they were dishonest about it who thought that at the end of the day, their job was to defend the Republican candidate rather than tell the truth as they saw it. And I'm glad you separated out the honest hacks from the dishonest Well, well no, look, I mean, it's like when you see political, you see some political consultants on TV. Um, I don't mean you. I mean the kind of political consultants that 
other political consultants I know have never heard of, you know, but they yeah. give them, you know, party GOP strategists yeah. and they just happen to be well, you know, one of the pro- one of the one of the challenges has been that there uh, especially early on, there weren't that many people who were willing to step forward. I mean, Jeffrey Lord on CNN got the, sure. that gig because there weren't that many people at that point in the campaign who were willing to speak for Trump. And even uh, even now, when you look at the people who step up, they're not, you know... It's hard to find... Name brand uh, conservative or Republican spokespeople. Yeah, no, this is a, this is a big problem um, for my colleagues at Fox News, for, for the other television networks as well, in that... Even if you are a rigorous, serious, committed defender of something called Trumpism, the problem is is that Trump himself is beholden to no coherent intellectual or ideological program. And so at some point, it's sort of like, do you play the man or do you play the ball? And uh, I made this point when that Julius Krein's guy came out with that pro-Trump intellectual journal, which I was very much in favor of them doing, even though I disagree with a lot of the ideas, because I like intellectual journals that try to flesh out these things. I was a huge fan of the public interest. I mean, I read it religiously. and But I predicted that they're going to have this dilemma of do they defend the ever-serpentining Donald yeah, I mean, Trump it's, it's or do they defend a... the ideas? And you can't do both because he's going to flip-flop so right. much. You know, I mean, that is I, – I, I used to joke that the hat that he should have worn – would read rent this space. Yeah, there's be, a lot to that because uh, he he is not wedded to any particular ideology. He is wedded to, and I do want to get back to your story. But sure. since we're on it, he he is wedded to uh, one thing, which is uh, winning. Yeah, and his fundamental postulate. You heard it the other day, and we'll talk about the Kavanaugh hearings because I know you've mm-hmm. uh, commented on them. But uh, when he was asked by Leslie Stahl about why he um, chose to go after Dr. Ford, he said, well, we wouldn't have won if I hadn't done that. And I I honestly think that he believes that uh, the end absolutely justifies the means. And if you win, anything you do in service of winning is justifiable. But that also means that any idea is fungible to that Go. That's right. I, there's, a, there's an additional problem. I'm a big believer, I've been arguing this for a couple of years now, that Trumpism isn't an ideological or intellectual program. It's a psychological phenomenon, both in terms of understanding the president and understanding his biggest supporters. Um, and so part of the problem that I think defines a lot of the stuff that you're talking about is that, you know, in economics, they have this phrase, winner's bias. There's a great cartoon of this guy who says, you know, they told me to give up. They told me there was no chance, but I stuck to my gut. I kept buying those lottery tickets, and now and I won. So, And Donald Trump is very much unlike – you must know a lot of rich people, right? Uh, I know a lot of rich people. Most of them care passionately about their integrity and their yeah. reputation. And uh, most of the billionaires I've ever met or read about would not think it worth their time to go on YouTube hawking stakes. Right. And so Trump kind of is a black swan in that way. And he, because of his ego, he retroactively thinks that anything he did is the reason why he's where he is. And so my problem with that, the, the attack on Ford part is that so many of Trump's supporters and Trump himself think that's why they won the Kavanaugh fight when in fact 
he put the Kavanaugh confirmation in more jeopardy at that moment than at any other point, because the whole goal was to get Sue Collins, Jeff Flake, and, and Murkowski to vote. And by him attacking Ford, he put those votes in jeopardy. He didn't rally the troops. He put the whole thing in the crosshairs in a way. But the lesson he takes from it is, is that's why we won. And it's the wrong lesson. And it's the wrong lesson for Trump's biggest supporters because they have now internalized once again that the way you win is to be the most obnoxious, most cantankerous, uh, most pugnacious person in the fight. And that's a problem on the college level, that kind of thinking, and it's a problem in our national politics. I wish that friends of mine like Bill Kristol and others would take more credit for the fact that it's the reason why Kavanaugh or, or Gorsuch are on the bench is because Trump's skeptical conservatives forced him yeah. to use that list. Instead, you get the sort of Sean Hannity argument that this proves that Donald Trump is passionate about yeah. the Constitution. He's not passionate about the Constitution. No, this in fact, in fact he, 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 in order to reassure conservatives and evangelicals who were worried about the fact that he was pro-choice right. not long ago, right. uh, he needed to certify that he was kosher, as it were. Right. And uh, he embraced this list that the Federalist Society developed. Uh, I don't think Kavanaugh was on the original list, but... He was on the, the updated, yeah. But that's, but, that but, sort of gets my point about how these third-party institutions are sort of acting like parties. You know, the Federalist Society is, was credentializing Trump in a way that um, Trump himself couldn't do. But it also speaks to um, the kind of Faustian bargain that's been made here, because... If you, I was with a prominent Republican yesterday, and I won't mention it because it was an off-the-record event, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who basically, the essence of his message was, I don't love a lot of what he does, but, you know, look, we got the judges, we got the tax cut, we've, we got deregulation, so uh, we're getting a lot out of this. Mm-hmm. And it's a very transactional, and it's very Trumpian in a way. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'll give you this stuff, and you give me what I want, and... Uh, but there's not there's not a there's no sort of moral or ethical dimension uh, to it. Yes, yeah, I I would have no problem if more Republicans I'd have problems, but I I find it utterly defensible as an intellectual proposition to have a transactional relationship with Donald Trump. What bothers me and what I think is so corrupting of conservatism and of the Republican Party is that we are hardwired evolutionarily to resist the idea that our leaders are bad people. We want to believe, we want to put faith in them, right? Um, that's why Bill Rusher, the publisher of National Review, always used to tell young writers when they started, put not your faith in princes, right? Politicians will always disappoint you. Not because they're bad people, I mean, some are, but because their incentive structures are just different than what an idealistic 22-year-old out of college who's taking a huge entrepreneurial risk to write for an obscure magazine, you know, we're different kinds of creatures. And so I have no problem with people saying, look, we're getting the judges. I, you know, we're getting, you know, some, we got tax cuts, blah, 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 blah. The problem is, is in the realm, and this is why I say it's a psychological phenomenon, in the realm of talk radio and cable news and the fever swamps of the internet, they have to convince themselves that Donald Trump is a good man. And so what is happening is, in all sorts of ways, the de- definition of what is good is being bent and corrupted to fit the man. I have been asking people for two and a half years now, give me a definition of good character that Donald Trump can clear. 
there isn't one. And I'm not even just talking about the sex stuff, right? I mean, forget the affairs, forget that he's got more ex-wives than the previous 45 presidents combined, all that kind of stuff. In business, he just bragged about lying and cheating. He bragged about oh. betraying it was his, his bi- partners. It, actually, it's that his was model. his business model. Yeah. And so um, the people who are redefining what is good to be winning and fighting, right? Those are amoral concepts. Those are Nietzschean concepts to a certain extent. And you see people, and so whenever I say on Twitter or elsewhere, you know, the man doesn't have a good character, people come out of the, David Horowitz, all of these guys, they come attack me, and yet they can't come up with a definition of good character for the guy. But if people said instead, oh, yeah, look, he's crude, he's boorish, I don't like the way he tweets, you know, he tweets like an escape monkey from a cocaine study, fine, but you know, look what we're getting. I don't love that argument, I think it's insufficient, but it's intellectually and politically defensible. But instead, what they have to say is that, you know, under Comrade Trump, we're going to get the greatest wheat harvests we've ever seen east of the Urals. They have to build them up into something. And that has a teaching effect on people. And it has a corrupting effect. Yeah. Uh, first of all, let me say that we we do have some escape monkeys among our <laughs> listeners, and they're deeply offended by the analogy that you just... Fair enough. ...that you just drew. You know, you've written this book, Suicide of the West, uh, and in it you talk about uh, rules and norms and mm-hmm. institutions. I mean, my great concern, you know, uh, and I've said this here before, I, I very much believe in, in democracy and when people win elections, um, they get the opportunity sure. to to take the lead on policy, not dictate it, but take the lead on policy. But the kind of subjugation of uh, rules and norms and uh, institutions uh, to, you know, personal political goals uh, in by a president of the United States, I think is, is deeply, deeply destructive. You're, presidents are trustees of our institutions sure. and norms. If the message the president says, you know, I was struck by a, a a meeting, uh, meeting he had early in his administration that was reported where he met with a Native American tribe and they said... Uh, I remember this. Yeah. They wanted to drill on their land and yeah. they, they, they were not allowed to because of some EPA ruling or something. Yeah. And he said, just do it. Who's going to stop you? I'm president now. Yeah. I mean, it's like gangster... Yeah, yeah. No, gangster I, I, rules. I, I, I agree. And so this, again, gets us to this sort of psychological problem where... Back, remember when Steve Bannon was still in the White House um, and had less flexibility to wear so many layers of clothing? Um, <laughs> he uh, he was determined to you know destroy Mitch McConnell, right? Destroy Jeff Flake, uh, Corker, um, Sass to a lesser extent, right? And again and again and again, they would say um, he the Bannonites that. Um, these people are obstructing Donald Trump's agenda. And the reality is, look, Donald Trump's agenda is Mitch McConnell's agenda. Whatever Mitch McConnell gets through the Senate, they then credit to Trump as part of his agenda. What they didn't like was the fact that Corker and Flake and a handful of others, even though they voted 85, yeah. 95% well, of them, but oh, they every more now than and, 90, yeah. Yeah, but every now and then when Trump did something indefensible, they wouldn't defend it and they would criticize it. And... uh Meanwhile, Rand Paul, who's probably done more than any other Republican to undermine huge chunks of the Trump agenda, 
sucks up to Trump in public. And so no one attacked him. And this is, this is, this is the mechanism of a cult of personality where the real, you know, you judge political movements not by what they say they believe, but what, by what they prioritize. And the sort of Trumpist movement is, is in large respects about praising, he, heaping praise and honor on Donald Trump. Because that's what Donald Trump responds to. That's what he cares about. And the people who have risen in the sort of conservative media sphere and po political sphere in the last couple of years are the, per are the people who've figured that out. They, they, they not only praise up, but they praise down. And that is bending the, the party and the movement. Well, I mean, I think a prime example of that is Lindsey Graham. Yeah. Uh, you know who who's uh, fa famously a iconoclastic, yeah. but, but and was as um, caustic in his assessment of Donald Trump as anybody who ran against him uh, in 2016, uh, and and yet uh, now is very much uh, in his corner. And and Lindsey has said. In uh, you know, in interviews, he's been very candid about. It. He said the guy is not all that complicated. If you're nice to him, he's nice yeah. to you. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a big problem. It's, it's also look in politics. I mean, you know this stuff far better than I do. But traditionally, the way you guide or herd a president to a certain position is you say nice things about him when he does the things that you like, and you criticize him when he does the things that are wrong. The problem is, is that Trump has none of the normal reactions to criticism. He only respond. any stick doesn't work. It has to be carrots. It yeah. has to be praise. And that distorts our understanding of how just politics works in a weird way. Because again, it's a psychological phenomenon that we're all trying to put through the prism of a political one. And yet, um, as you, um, you hinted at before, he really has the Republican, the base of the Republican Party in his thrall. Mm -hmm. If you challenge Trump, um, it is a prescription for disaster, as Flake learned, as Corker learned, as as Mark Sanford yeah. uh, learned in South Carolina. Uh, and you know, Trump said, "If I I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone, and my base would still be with me." That was that was true. Yeah. Well, or at least it was. Hyperbole grounded in truth. I mean, I think he'd lose. I mean, some, I want to test the proposition. Right, right. He'd but... lose some supporters <laughs> if he shot people on Fifth Avenue. Yeah. It depends who. He I shot want him. to encourage him. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, no. Look, I I I agree with that. And it's, uh, I mean, on the flip side, he's not as bad from a conservative perspective. He's not as bad as I feared about some things. Um, he was more willing. Yeah, although if Democrats win the House, uh, could you see him? Um, you know, I've heard some Republicans say, you know. He could cut some deals. Yeah, I mean, I think his his greatest. Because as you point out, he's not moored by ideology or philosophy. Right, and and the, I do think the sort of one of the um, signature mistakes of the entire Trump presidency was that the inaugural address. Right, if he had come out of the box doing what I feared and thought he would do, and what Bannon clearly wanted him to do, and give Democrats a trillion dollar stimulus bill, I mean, just some massive pork thing, right? Instead of tax cuts for the rich, right? If he had come out and done that, I don't know, I mean, you're a better vote counter than I am, but I would have gotten a bunch of Democrats and he would have gotten half a third of the Republicans. It right. was very similar to the sort of the stimulus fight that you guys had, um, which I think led to a lot of the, the bunkerization of our politics under uh, Barack Obama. But instead with Trump, he comes out of the gate 
And he gives the speech. I mean, it's a little unfair. It's a little cliche. But, you know, there was a certain kind of, I bet it was better in the original German tone to it. Yeah, and right. um, the sort of blood and soil kind of stuff. And he said almost everything a president would say if they wanted to make the Democrats hate him. Right. And um, and then that. And so that, I think, was a huge mistake. And so Trump responds to praise. The people who praise him the most are the hardcore 25 percent of the party. And and so what bothers me, you know, I don't like populism. I didn't like it under Barack Obama. I didn't like it under William Jennings Bryan. I'm not a fan of populism. Um, but and I've been writing against populism for 20 years. So people who say, oh, you just don't like Trump. That's why you're saying this. No, I, I'm just trying to stay consistent. But um the it's it's weird. You know, so you guys brilliantly in 2008 kind of changed the political formula by changing the electorate, right? Not the demographics, but just the electorate. You got more women, minorities, young people to turn out. And so the normal model of like running to the center, even though Barack Obama spoke to the center in his way and all that, wasn't the 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 the, the driving. We actually, but it wasn't just that. We 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 actually uh, made inroads into white working class sure. areas. Um, you know, carried the state of Indiana for the first right. time since 1964 that a Democrat had done that. Right. But, but, but my point is is that so then you get to 2016. Ted Cruz kind of wanted to do something similar where he was just going to change the electorate. He was going to goose up white working class rural voters. He was going to do what Trump did. Right, but then he loses. So then Trump kind of does it organically. And all of that, I think, is fair game in trying to get elected. You try to get the voters that are going to vote for you to vote for you. That's what politics is. But the thing that is bizarre, look, I have, as you know, I have criticisms of, of the Obama presidency. But yeah, I, I noticed that. Yeah. But but Obama, you know, uh, and I've changed my mind about some of them. While working on the book, I quote Barack Obama favorably a few places. Um, I think the way he talked about the Declaration and the founding is, is actually the way Democrats should do it. I think he's great on the campus snowflake stuff. But, um, you know, Barack Obama, like all previous presidents, even when he had something partisan that he wanted to get done, he at least did the country the courtesy. I'm not trying to be, uh, dis, you know, uh, uh, critical here. He he did the country the courtesy of talking as if he was the president of the whole country. Yeah, well, this is, you know? this is a... And you know what? And Trump I think doesn't... Most, can't I, do I, that. I, I think that in my lifetime, most presidents see themselves that way. They understand that once the election is over. Right. But the election's never over for Donald Trump. Right. And he, uh, I think, uh, you know, he he thinks that his base is a majority. Right. And he thinks his base are the best people. And they're the real Americans. And that's what I hate about... Historically, populism always uses the language of talking about all the people. It just means peopleism from the Latin, Right. But in reality, the history of populism is that you think your people are the good and legitimate people and anybody who's opposed to them or to you are bad or treacherous or whatever. And Donald Trump, he he says stuff that normally you would just have, you know, you need Maureen Dowd to write a column speculating about what's in his head. And he just, he says it, you know, right. about my people are yeah, the best no, people. My people are good people, you know. We are uh, completely, uh, there's a, Actually, his id streams right publicly. I mean, you don't even have to uh, you don't have to speculate about it. He's in that sense, Graham is right. He's he's very uncomplicated. But it this this goes back to my point before how presidents view their role, mm -hmm. and he just doesn't 
he he thinks he's the leader of a faction of mm-hmm. a movement, and that's a represents a majority, and he really doesn't care about yeah. uh, the rest. I ultimately think that is going to defeat him because uh, you know he kind of drew an inside straight mm-hmm. in 2016, and most presidents will, would think, well, how do I build on that? Right. How do I expand that? Um, you know, he's counting on another inside straight or else he doesn't pursue. I know Karl Rove says that um, when he met with Trump in 2016, Trump was telling him that he was going to win California and he yeah, was yeah. going to win. So there's a, an a element of delusion. Um, but let's, let's and, and I want to just, I'm going to bracket this here by saying, I'm going to skip over how you went from being a piss poor high school student <laughs> who could who who ended up going to an all women's heretofore all women's yes right college yeah. Goucher College. Uh, so that was one thing I wanted to uh, touch on before we get back to sure. these other issues. Uh, another is uh, the, uh, your transition from there to becoming a a conservative writer. When when was it that you decided? This is what I'm going to do. And how did you hook up with the National Review? Sure. So um, I wanted to be a writer almost all of my life, but I wanted to write science fiction and comic books. And one day when I get enough FU money, I may give that a try. Um, so when I got to college, I discovered that I was much more, you know, just politically fluent than a lot of other people because, you know, my dad subscribed to 13 newspapers at home and 27 magazines because he was in the syndication business, right? right? And I was just, I was, I was marinated in that stuff. And, um, and so there's this, there's the, there's a phenomenon that happens at every single sex school that goes co-ed is that when, when Vassar took in, you know, men, men rushed to become the first editor of the newspaper, the get into student government because they want to be, they're sort of pioneers by f- selection bias. So I did a lot of that and I jumped into all that stuff. You but, know, Rahm Emanuel went to Sarah Lawrence. I think I did know that, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, fast forward after college, I went to Prague and I taught English. Um, and I went there to be a starving writer. I sort of batted 500. I didn't starve and I didn't write. Um, <laughs> but I had a fantastic time. I came home. It's a great city. Fantastic, particularly back then. It was really a great yeah. time to be there. This was like 91, 92. And, yeah. And um, um, my girlfriend at the time was going to AU Law School. And uh, I was hanging out with her in Washington. And... I did an informational, I was just doing weird interviews around. I landed a paid internship for Ben Wattenberg at the American Enterprise Institute. Mm-hmm. And with the deal being that I would replace Great his, demographer. Uh, yeah, self-taught demographer and um, uh, former Lyndon Johnson speechwriter. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was proud that he was called Reagan's favorite Democrat. And, um, uh, and so I ended up being a research assistant for Wattenberg, who was a syndicated columnist. And I did freelance writing on the side um, throughout the 90s. I then became a television producer for PBS. I produced his TV show and some other stuff. And so one of my frustrations when the Lewinsky thing happened is that, you know, to this day, there are still people out there who say, you know, uh, you're just famous because of all that. I certainly got a lot more exposure because of all that. But my first op-ed, first one I ever submitted for writing uh, was on the day after the election in the Wall Street Journal in 1992. And it was on this argument that I want to return to about why we should make Congress, uh, uh, we should enlarge Congress dramatically. Um, it would fix all the gerrymandering problems and all sorts of other stuff. But, um, uh, and so I wrote for commentary, for the public interest, all that kind of stuff during the 90s. 
And then it turns out that it's probably not a great idea to be involved in a uh, perceived conspiracy against the Democratic president while you're working for PBS. <laughs> and so National Review had just taken over, um, had just hired, made Rich Lowry the editor. I had written for National Review before as a freelancer. I moved over there as a contributing editor. Um, and then in the early, I'm one of the first, I'm so in internet years, I'm Methuselah. I've been doing this for a very long time. And I, um, after about six months of doing weird posts for the site following the impeachment stuff and whatnot, um, I started writing this thing called The Goldberg File, which I kind of write today. And it was one of the first political blogs. It was before the word blog came out. It got pretty popular. So about six, eight months later, they asked me whether I wanted to be the editor of this new sister publication called National Review Online, where we were going to start an actual magazine. So I was the founding editor of National Review Online, and um, and I did that for uh, several years as sort of the hands-on person. And uh, so I've been at National Review now coming up on 20 years. And um, you, you had a brother, uh-huh. uh, Joshua. Yeah. Um, a fellow conservative. He ran for the city council. Yeah. Two years later, he died mm -hmm. of a drug overdose. Yeah. Uh, and you've talked about that publicly, so I'm not outing sure, no, no, no. anything yeah. here. Um, wh how, how, what did you learn from that experience? And, and it must have been extraordinarily painful. Oh, it, was, it was terrible. It was terrible in all the normal ways and terrible in some special ones because, just to correct the record, he had a drug problem, uh, but he died because he was altered and messed up, and he fell down a flight of stairs oh, and, hit, and hit his head. And I had to come home from a junket in Israel uh, and be the one to pull the plug. And not to get macabre, but I will forever despise the medical team at the hospital that was in charge of all of this because they gave him no sedation. So when we pulled the plug, he literally, his eyes open, he sat oh. up and it was horrifying. And I don't need to dwell on it, but it's just one of these things that, you know, it's, it's, it's an image you can't get out of your head. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so look, national review has been against the drug war for 20 years, something like that, a little longer. Uh, and I always ask my colleagues if the drug war worked, would you be in favor? We'd be in favor of it. And it gets interesting responses because the assumption is it just doesn't work. I am off the reservation about drug legalization from a lot of my libertarian. I've become more libertarian over the years. But um, the problem is, is that the libertarian model for drug legalization assumes that we are all rational actors. And the problem is, is that there is an irreducible number. You can call it trivial or you can call it Significant. It depends on how you want to define these things. But there's some number, somewhere between 1% and 10% of people who can no longer be rational actors once they try some of these things even once. And um, anybody who has seen what serious drug addiction does, not just to the person, but the, the people around them, uh, this sort of the, the glib arguments for drug legalization really, really know me. I'm not talking about weed. You know, pot's a different thing. But if you're talking about, you know, heroin and that kind of stuff, um, the you have to acknowledge that if you make it like any other product and you allow Procter & Gamble and GlaxoSmithKline Beecham to market heroin and ad, maybe even advertise for heroin, you're going to have a lot more drug addicts. And a lot of those people 
are going to be enslaved to it for the rest of their lives and they're going to die from it. And um, that doesn't mean you have to be, I'm not Jeff Sessions either, but you know, I'm, I'm very we much in favor. Te- uh, there's, I mean, the opioid crisis is legal drugs yeah. being. And the lesson there should be, this is the kind of thing that happens when you can push these things legally. And, um, and so I'm, just, I, I'm very much a believer in the treatment model. Like sending my brother to jail would not have been a great idea for anybody. Um, but I've just, I've, the, the people who either sort of this Randian model, we are all just, you know, the captains of ourselves and we have no social solidarity with anybody whatsoever of drug legalization. I just, I find more heartless than people realize. Um, at the same time, I find this lock them up, they're all criminals approach to be grotesque as well. I think these problems need to, you know, I would not legalize hard addictive narcotics, but, um, um, and I very much favor sort of a more treatment-based approach. But it's, as long as you're willing to acknowledge that any approach has costs and benefits, I'm willing to have an argument. There are no panaceas to it as far as I'm concerned. I want to return to some of the themes that you've that's fine uh, that you've developed. I, I also should say, uh, parenthetically, you, you talk about the stimulus as the beginning of the, mm-hmm. what was the phrase you used? The bunkerization of the parties. To me, uh, as one who was there when the economy had just had the worst quarter since 1930, and we were losing 800,000 jobs, it was something that we felt we needed to do to uh, to get the economy out of the ditch that it was in. And I actually think a lot of the things that he did along with the Fed did get the economy yeah. out of the ditch, which I said to a group yesterday, I was with at the same place with this Republican. I don't understand. You know, it's Trump. one of Trump's flaw, uh, flaws is because of the, his psyche, he cannot acknowledge that, you know, he, he has to, he has to propagate this myth that he inherited a disaster and that he alone turned the economy around right. that, that has been expanding for, you know, eight years. Yeah, yeah. My point wasn't a policy point, just to be clear. Um, I should say more more like six, but good. I know some of the Republicans on the House side from back in the, that stimulus fight. And this is, a, this is an analytical point that for whatever the reason, and I don't, care about the blame game at this point the republicans felt there were there were republicans during that stimulus thing that were terrified that the deal was going to be such that a third of the republicans were going to have to vote for it and if that happened that would have made basically obama economic agenda in the first term a bipartisan thing and for whatever reason and i'm sure you have strong views as you were there about it eric Cantor and that crowd came to the conclusion that they had to vote unanimously against it. And the lesson that they took from that, whether that that was the right policy move, whatever, that's a different point. The lesson those guys took from that was, we can vote against a president with 70% approval ratings and win politically because of it. And everyone sort of doubled down on their partisan positions yeah. after that. Listen, McCon- Mitch McConnell was very, very blunt about this. He did an interview with Carl Hulse um, and Adam Nagurney in January of 2010, and he said, we just decided we weren't going to, uh, we weren't going to give him votes on anything 
that, you know, he was going to have to, because that would signify, as you suggest, that he's figured it out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've said before, I give McConnell uh, credit for whether I, you know, I'll leave aside the appropriateness of it. It was a great strategic in, uh, inspiration that these big Democratic majorities were such that let him solve these, take these very tough steps that need yeah. to be taken. That'll improve our chances of winning in the midterms. And that, you know, turned out to be, from a, as a political matter, true. Whether it was good for the country, I think, is a lot more... I, I mean, it's ironic. This week, Mitch McConnell said in an interview that he doesn't think one party can solve entitlements yeah. uh, anymore. And I think that's probably... I think that's been true for a very long time. Yes, yes. But it's interesting to hear him say it now, you know? Yeah, so. no. It's in, but that was in the same breath that he said that the... $1.5 trillion tax cut had nothing to do with um, the increased deficits, which I think is palpably untrue. Now, maybe there'll be growth that somehow right. catches up over time, but that isn't true. So ta let's talk about populism. Sure. Um, because uh, populism uh, is a reaction to something. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, you talk about the tribalism mm -hmm. associated with it. There's also, um, you know, I... I, I am not a, uh, I'm not one to say capitalism should be swept aside. I think capitalism is a tremendous generative force mm -hmm. uh, uh, in a positive way over the last, as you point out, over the last 300 years or right. so. But um, what we see now, and we've seen it before, uh, I think because of the march of technology, uh, that we've created these... Uh, a situation where if you're well-positioned, well-educated, and well-positioned, there's enormous opportunity in this new economy that technology has created. If you're on the wrong side of the divide, if you're one of the disrupted, um, you know, it's much less certain, and there's a lot of anxiety about the future. Um, isn't it incumbent on capitalists uh, and policymakers to say, what are we going to do about this? Sure, absolutely. Um, I don't think that populism is the answer, though. Right? I mean, look, I, I, on the policy side, I'm a big believer, and I try to make this point all the time, that complexity is a subsidy. That the more complex you make society, the more complex you make the rules, the more you're rewarding people who either have the cognitive capital, the social capital, the political capital, <clears throat> the economic capital to navigate around them. If you've got 10 lawyers on staff, there's pretty much no regulation that's going to be a real problem for you. If you are locked out of the system, as it were, and those rules serve as a barrier to entry, and it's a problem. And technology is a problem. I and mean, one of the I've – I've changed my mind about a lot of these things – um, I'm a big, I've become a big fan of Joseph Schumpeter, who predicted capitalism was doomed in part for the kind of reasons that you're talking about, that that ec the economic dislocations that it causes um, and the the relentless rational efficiency that it has, that it goes after institutions that make capitalism possible, right? Because capitalism depends on what Schumpeter calls extra rational institutions that cannot be created by capitalism and cannot be restored by capitalism once lost. You know, the family is the best example. And, uh, but po the problem with populism is that, look, I, I come from a conservative tradition that generally just doesn't like enthusiasm of any kind. <laughs> and, um, but populism is inherently anti-intellectual. 
I'm not saying that intellectuals can't use populism for for intellectual ends, and that's what pop, that's what politicians often do. But my favorite statement on populism comes from William Jennings Bryan, where he said, "The people of Nebraska are for free silver; therefore, I am for free silver. I will look up the arguments later." And um, populism, I would argue, and other other people have argued this as well, is fundamentally a form of identity politics. It is a saying that we're the good people. And our people are good because our will and our commitment to our cause says we're good. And the people who disagree with us are the bad people. And I don't think that's how democracy is supposed to work. Democracy is supposed to be about disagreement. It's supposed to be about argument, right? That's that's the good stuff that comes out of the Enlightenment, is this idea that enlisting uh, reason or right reason and uh, facts and evidence, we can persuade people that this is the way to go and that's not the way to go. Populism says, shut up and get with the program. And um, But we should point out, because uh, as you mentioned democracy, William Jennings Bryan ran for president, what, three times? Yeah. Never got elected. Yeah. And what did happen was there was a uh, progressive movement, Teddy Roosevelt uh, being a central part of that, that responded to the dislocations of that mm-hmm. day that the Industrial Revolution was creating. Uh, and uh, and and then we saw again Franklin Roosevelt responding to sure. uh, the challenges of that time. You know, it seems to me we have a situation now where you have uh, this yawning and growing gap between people who are doing fantastically well sure. and others who are kind of hold, holding their place or struggling to stay uh, in place and that is a fundamentally unhealthy dynamic for a democracy and for capitalism and so you know uh does the the tyranny of the quarterly report uh instead of long-range thinking is that good does uh you know uh does the uh mechanization does the impact of the mechanization of tasks that people used to perform, how do we deal with it? Mm-hmm. How do we deal with that so that there, you know, there are going to be other jobs created, but not necessarily for the people who lost no, the stops, jobs they lost. That's absolutely right. And I, I think there are an enormous number of problems we have in our culture and our politics that are way upstream of Washington. And this economic one is one. You know, Ben Sass has been making this point for a while now that all of the scapegoating of immigrants – for stealing these jobs, most of the, you know, industrial jobs haven't been lost from outsourcing and they haven't been lost to immigrants. They've been lost to robots. 80% of them. Yeah. yeah. And um, that's but, certainly true now. It wasn't necessarily true at the beginning, but sure. it is true now. And so the, the you know, one of the first things you've got to do in politics is identify the problem. And so I think you're absolutely right that populism as, as a sort of a political market signal of anger is instructive and that you should listen to what people are angry about because most people tend to be angry about things for a good reason. Um, One of the problems that we have today is people are getting angry about things for bad reasons. And uh, social media and Facebook and Twitter, they're making all that worse. You've made the point and you made the point in your book and I I make the point all the time that the social media and the internet, which was supposed to unify us, um, has created the ability for silos, right. uh, where you your your point of view is always affirmed, right. not informed, and everyone outside the silo is considered alien. Right. Uh, and I think that has had a really deleterious effect on our uh, 
on our politics. I mean, it's amazing. If you just think about, you know, the 1960s were vastly more violent than right now, right? Um, I mean, in terms of political violence. Yeah. And, you know, you just look at the number of bombings in California, like from 68 to 70, and it's just astounding. Well, assassinations. And, and of course, assassinations. All Imagine, you know, today you get people freaking out because some idiot knocks a MAGA hat off a kid in a diner and it becomes this source of just incredible rage. Imagine what happens when you actually have real political violence starting to be magnified and circulated through social media. It really concerns me because it does feel like the demand for ever greater violence is, it's, 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 it's not far away, and it's a real concern of mine. On both the both with the Antifa crowd and also with the sort of proud boy, whatever those jackasses are called. Um, you think the president is uh, provocative in this way? I don't think the president helps in any way in this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know. Just last night, uh, I don't know if we're supposed to reveal. No, that's fine. Yeah, no, no, no. He said at a rally, he was praising Gianforte for body the slamming a journalist from yeah. uh, Montana who. Yes, body slammed a journalist and, and pled guilty to it. Right, well, and but Trump last night is saying any guy who can body slam so, that so stuff I know, think is grotesque. So you know, I, uh, everyone is angry about it, mm-hmm. and I'm angry. I mean, it, it is grotesque, but uh, it also is. I mean, he knew exactly what he was saying. This notion that he kind of that these are just offhanded mm-hmm. remarks. He was playing to the crowd and playing to his base. This idea sure. that you know what we're not going to take any crap from anybody. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, with, with the, the core of his base, I bet you that played fine. Oh, I'm sure it did. And, and he's just, he's about the business right now of trying to stoke them up. Mm-hmm. I said today that if the caravan weren't coming up from uh, Central America, he, he would create it. Yeah. Although now, he says is, you guys brilliantly got that caravan going. Yes, so. I know. Um, I know. That, that's impressive work. I'm, I want to salute And at, at the same time that he says it's all because he's created this wonderful economy. Yeah. So well, it's like when he talks some... about trade deficits. He simultaneously says trade deficits are terrible, but he loves all this direct foreign investment. Direct foreign investment is literally the other side of the coin of a trade deficit because those dollars got to come back. He doesn't understand a lot of these things. He just he just says things. You yeah. know, I mean, that, and that's that. And so part of the problem is a lot of conservatives have priced all of this in, and they've gone numb to the bad side of it. And um, and look, I, I spend an enormous amount of time talking about how Trump is corrupting conservatives and how, you know, I, I ask Republicans and conservatives all the time, what could a future Democratic, Democratic president do that you won't be a hypocrite for criticizing? And um, it's very rare to get anything like remotely a good answer on that. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that the mainstream media, the left, they don't understand that Trump is having a corrupting effect on them too. No, I listen. I agree with this. I keep saying he's Pavlov, and we're we're the dogs. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, he he knows how to. I mean, you know, for all of his shortcomings in terms of his range of knowledge, uh, he has an intuitive genius for the modern media environment yeah. for exploiting people's grievances. Uh, I mean, he and that should not he should not be treated like a buffoon for yeah. that reason, yeah. because in that way, he is as 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 smart and intuitive as anybody has ever been uh, sitting in that office. And in my view, that, you know, is a big, con, big concern. Uh, 
I just before we go, mm-hmm. I, I had a whole list of things I want to get to, but you're an interesting guy. And I'm we, sorry, I'm rambling. No, too, no, so, no. Yeah. I, we, we're we're both rambling. That's the nature of the conversation. <laughs> but um, one of the things that also concerns me, not about capitalism, but about democracy, uh, is uh, we have this constitutional system that was set up by a group of geniuses, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the things that they uh, agreed to was a system that would keep uh, the majority from overrunning the minority, mm-hmm. that would protect the, the agrarian states from the from the mercantile states mm-hmm. and so on. Um, now we have a situation where twice, because of the Electoral College in the last 16 years, we've had presidents elected by fewer votes mm-hmm. than their opponent. Uh, or who had fewer votes than their opponent. And uh, we have a Senate that represents less than a majority Mm -hmm. of the public who have affirmed a couple of, or or four Supreme Court justices, if you count the two Bush put on, um, you know, who who may or may not represent the mainstream thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, Isn't that a... Isn't that a threat as well? We now have like to pre- they they wanted to prevent a tyranny of the majority. I think that you know there is a threat of a tyranny of the minority. Yeah. So my colleague at AEI, Norm Ornstein, talks and writes about all this. I I think it could lead to a real problem, but um, I'm unmoved by a lot of this. Um, I'll just say uh, the calls for the. This, the, the claims that the Senate is undemocratic, there's a category error embedded in that. The Senate's democratic in the sense that in each state, people democratically vote for their senators. Yeah, without, uh, no one's arguing that. Yeah, and so the senators represent, are supposed to represent states. I think the part of the problem is that there are a lot of people on the left side of the aisle who haven't figured out what they think of states. If, if we're going to have states... Then and we're going to have this set up in the Constitution that states get represented as states and that there are state interests and that states are sovereign and that's where you know what ninety five percent of criminal law is all that kind of thing. If we're going to say states are real political entities, then um, we're going to have to live with all sorts of consequences of that. That means that the Senate is not going to be perfectly diversely representative of the people. Um, that means, frankly, but, but but you know the demographic trends are such that. Uh, that and the migratory trends of people in this country are uh, now leading them to metropolitan areas. Sure. So you're going to have increasingly um, uh, depopulated states uh, with uh, more and more relative influence per capita uh, as people yeah, aggregate I, in these urban areas. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I mean, you know, my favorite political institution of the three branches is probably the Supreme Court. It's the least democratic one. Because what its job is to do is to defend individual rights as enshrined in the Constitution. You know, I mean, it does other things, but that's the part I like about it. That's anti-majoritarian, right? I don't care if the entire country votes that I don't have the right to free speech. I still have the right to free mm-hmm. speech, right? And so if we want to get rid – if we want to have two houses of Congress that are directly elected by the people and a representative of the people, then you, got, you basically have to get rid of states, and um, I wish people would just make that argument. I also think that a lot of this is a function of the fact that California is so big 
and so democratic that it skews everything. If you got it, the other top 10 really populated states tend to be, with the exception, I think, of New York, tend to be kind of swing states. And so but, this, you, but, you, but you can't recognize, in your making your arguments for states, you can't say, well, let's re- just recognize these 49, you know. I no, mean, no, I understand that. But if, Cali- if, 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 if liberals really don't care about states, let's break up California into three or four states. I, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just suggesting that there's a practical... There's a trend uh, that's a problem, but it problem. doesn't. I don't but, think. But are, I'll tell you what makes no it, one says what makes I, it worse is that the shredding of norms within the institutions. Oh, so, I agree with that entirely. I mean, the whole point of a filibuster was to try and force a bipartisan sure. consensus, and when you do away with those, and 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 every norm that gets shredded uh, is very hard to restore. No, I agree. I, 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 and I think what people don't really realize is that it's not so much that people are destroying norms; they're weaponizing them. And so, I mean, I remember when the anonymous New York Times piece yes. came out, right? Uh, Mike Pence gives an interview. And uh, after he gets through the obligatory saluting Donald Trump and his broad-shouldered leadership, <laughs> uh, he does this thing where he says how disappointed he is that Democrats, that someone in the administration would be violating this norm. And I think it's bad that someone violated that norm. Yeah. It would have been outrageous if someone in the Obama administration did it. Uh but then when he was asked about, well, what about Trump doing X? He says, well, look, Trump was elected to be a disruptor, right? Yeah. And so the yeah. argument ends up being on both sides now, like with, with Cory Booker's almost Spartacus moment thing, right? The argument is they aren't treating the norms right, so we're going to use norms as weapons too. And people want the other – it's sort of like the version of free speech for me but not for thee – Norms for thee, but not for me. Everyone wants the other side to be constrained by norms, but not them. Well, the reality is we're in like a spiral downward uh, and with each side reacting to the other. I mean, I get criticized all the time because I'm arguing that these norms have to be observed even if the other side doesn't. And, uh, you know, that is uh, perceived as submission by some uh, on the left. Welcome to my world. I've been arguing that, you know, that... You know, there's the, one of the problems which I'm partly a contributor to, and I I deserve blame for, is this 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 obsession with what I call Saul Alinsky envy on the right. The right has convinced itself of this story that all you guys did their march through the institutions, you took over everything because you internalized the you know the, you treated Saul Alinsky like he was your Sun Tzu, right? And I think that's overstated to be yeah to, to say the least, right? I'm not saying Saul Alinsky didn't have any impact, but you know, come on and. And so this narrative gets absorbed on the right that says, you guys cheat so much, we have to use the same tactics. And so one of the really corrupting things that's been going on on the right, I think it happens on the left too, but obviously I have a fiduciary role you know, at, on the right, is that when you say the ends justify the means, very quickly the means become ends in themselves. And you start having all this stuff like it's worth it just to own the libs or their tears are delicious, that kind of stuff, right? And so this is part of the corrupting thing that's happening on the left now is there is this sort of invisible primary to be the most pugnacious to fight back. And so you had, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton saying you can't be civil anymore. Yeah, you, you had, no, and I was critical of that. Yeah, no, and I thought Michelle Obama's statements were good on that. Um, and, you know, everybody is sort of, trying to be Michael Avenatti. Well, this is what I mean by a spiral. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, but we'll see uh, whether in 2000 and 
2020, what, the candidate who emerges is is wins the sort of argument that you need to be as pugnacious as Trump yeah. to beat him, or whether there's someone who appeals to what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature who emerges as a more unifying figure. But if you have a 16-person primary the way we did, you're going to have the same collective action problems that we did, and that's it no, no, I, makes it harder for that com- person. Yeah, it does. It, it does. It does. It, these are these are complicated times. Uh, Jonah Goldberg, it's great to uh, be with you. This is fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.